all the buyers that you work with do this over and over, right? And they've seen every Absolutely. playbook and they've seen how they're watching the tapes and they got all the best advisors in the world and here you come and you don't know anything. It's just something you don't do very often and it's very complicated and it's easy to get wrong. And the DIY method can work in a boom time when somebody just makes a crazy offer that you can't refuse. But if it, you got to be more deliberate about it, getting great help for this thing you're going to go through once and then, you know, stop working on. You're not becoming M&A pro. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Greg Head, a CRM and SaaS expert with exits as both an early employee at ACT Software and as a co-founder of SalesLogix, which was sold to Sage for $300 million. Today, Greg spends his time mentoring SaaS founders on the value of bootstrapping their companies to retain equity ownership and control of the business decisions. Greg not only explains how venture capital often imposes unrealistic growth requirements, but he also emphasizes how founders who retain their equity experience larger personal financial wins when it comes time to sell their businesses. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Head. Greg, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I think that you have some very unique experience, but also perspective on how founders should be growing their businesses and understanding their own ROI and getting to exit, having gone through three really big exits yourself in an industry and taking on lots of venture capital. I think you've just seen a lot that our fellow founders are experiencing today, and you are presenting kind of another way to look at growing, funding a business, which I am an enormous fan of. So getting you on the show, like big win for us. I immediately- oh, that's very nice. I immediately bumped Mark Cuban from this time slot when I knew you could take it. <laughs> so thank you for being yeah. here. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> Great to be here, Todd. And uh, I think you just called me old and experienced and uh, certainly have done plenty in the software business where I spent my career and work with founders all over the world these days. And I did the VC funded exit growth public game for almost 30 years. And now I help founders like I talked to 500 founders a year and write on LinkedIn and podcasts and have advise 40 founders uh, all over the world who are staying off the VC funding. It's not it's not without funding, bootstrapped or lightly funded or whatever, but the software business has changed in the last five or six years, and there's more ways for founders to be successful. So I'm not out here selling funding. I'm out here helping founders achieve something meaningful for them and their employees and their customers and their markets because we're still changing the world and solving problems, but doing it through software businesses. You know, I feel an attachment to that kind of that, that mission, right? That is what we are doing. We're really trying to educate founders around a different way to exit a business. And we yeah. think we've figured out a better way. Certainly the statistics are, are proving it. But I think that the beginning of that entrepreneurial journey 
that you talk about so much of how mm -hmm. do you bootstrap is really, really important and meshes very, very well of what we see in founders today. Some of them thinking about that entrepreneurial path more as a career as opposed to you know, trying to hit that grand slam with one big swing, which is really the venture model. I, mm -hmm. Look, we're, we're going to get into this, and that's why I'm <laughs> excited, I, and I'm jumping the gun already. But could you, for the audience, take us back to kind of the beginnings of your career in software, which was kind of rare, right, the way you started, and, and take us through the kind of the three companies that you were part of in eventual exits. Okay. Well, there's a few minutes right there because it yep. was, uh, I've, I've been doing it a long time. I'm originally from Chicago, from the Midwest, and I started selling software at the first software retail store called Egghead Software back when software was in a box. This was late 80s. I went to University of Iowa as an honors student, economic Spanish and business and came back and didn't know what I wanted to do. Buddy mine said, hey, work with me at Egghead. So, Todd, I was Greghead from Egghead love it. with a love suit it. and a tie and a name tag. It confused people, but they sold half the software in North America. I fell in love with software. Uh, you know, stood in front of a wall of software, you know, help Egghead went public as one of the fastest growing companies. And this is back when software was, most people didn't have computers. And if you use software, you were a geek. And it was for hobbyists and the misfits. And so I was one of those misfits. I just fell in love with it. And everybody else who found their way into that, I joined a little software company that had 10 employees for a software that I've been selling and helping people with called ACT, which was one of the first software products for salespeople in a box, worked on a PC, eventually for Windows and all of that. But it was this little magical software for soft people on the, using their computers to manage their contacts and follow-ups and notes and history and all that stuff. And most salespeople didn't have computers. Most salespeople who sold computers didn't have computers to use in their business. So it was the early, early days. This little misfit company here in Dallas we grew it up. It sold to Symantec. It became the top software used by salespeople in the 90s, uh, 4 million users, top 20 software product. And I became product manager. And when the founder, Pat Sullivan, sold it to Symantec in 1993, a week after I got married, he said, I'm going, but I'm not going. Here you go, Greg. Right. So I was in the <laughs> middle of everything, but then I get to co-run the business inside of Symantec. So I ripped my new wife out of Texas and brought her to Silicon Valley and, you know, installed act there. And we grew that even more. And with Pat and myself, we, and three others, we started sales logics when sales teams were starting to get software in the mid nineties from, so we, from kitchen table to a hundred million dollar business, including buying act back from Symantec. Uh, we were the, one of the first sales automation products, then CRM. We went public in five years, 500 employees and kept on growing. And we sold that to Sage. And then I got to run the ACT business, a $50 million business by the time. And I was in charge of it. I was selling ACT on the shelf at Egghead with a name tag on. And <laughs> 10 years, 12 years later, I was running the business That's and installing awesome. it into a thing, $50 million business. I'm not superhuman. I just love the game and played it hard. And, you know, in those days, it wasn't really even about the money like it is today. There's big money involved and it's people think about the money. We, we were changing lives and you know, changing the world. It was pretty amazing, the crazy misfits that did it. And so both the 2001 and 1993 acquisitions, I was the one who they handed it off to and said, "Grow, Greg, go install it in that business and grow it up. So I got to see the startup, the growth, install it in a company and be part of a bigger company 
two different ways to do that. And, but I've been through that and then go off and do it again and play that cycle and did a whole bunch of things for a few years, started something and helped a lot of founders. But uh, I became chief marketing officer of Infusionsoft in Phoenix. And we grew that from 1500 million of VC capital. Uh, that didn't exit. So that's another version of the story, but it was really exciting. So Todd, I did CRM three times, contact yep. management, sales automation. And then for Infusionsoft was sales and marketing automation for small business. So in three different eras, the box, the client server, and the SaaS eras. And I just love the game. And I uh, help founders these days, you know, grow the businesses that make sense for them with, without funding. The, the funding people have enough help. Uh, it's, it's yeah. the, you know, this larger crowd, ironically, of serious founders building valuable software companies that don't have VC funding help and don't throw around equity to get advisors and VPs and that need a lot of help and they're doing great things. Thank you for all that background. Let me let me back up a little bit because I'm really interested in the acquisition of Act when you're at SalesLogic, right? And it was that before or after SalesLogic went public? It was literally at the same time. Nice. Okay. So it's part of going public? Were you Yeah, well, we were going to go public anyway, but it just added to the story. And sure. there was a timing thing. People who are old enough remember Symantec and everything in a yellow box, and it mm -hmm. was Norton Utilities and PC Anywhere and Act, and it was this conglomerate, if you will, of the, in the package software business. But then in 2000, a new CEO came in, John Thompson from IBM, and said, no, it's about security, internet security, stupid, and he got rid of all the stuff that wasn't that, including yeah. Act. Mm -hmm. So at the, literally that month, it was, you know we said, well, we'll take it and we'll buy it. We'll use some of the funding from going public. And so within a month and a half, we were public and doubled the size of our business. And I ended up running half of that business, running the whole ACT business, which I reconstituted now out of Symantec and into another entity that was already public. So I'm, I'm wondering, a lot of founders, right? They're thinking about what the exit could be someday and going public, sure, that is, could be someone's goal and not the majority mm -hmm. of companies go public. So going public, is there anything that it, through that experience that you might share that would shed some light on a founder that might be considering, hey, should I be exiting before I get to that size or no, going public really should be the goal? Well, it's hard to make going public the goal, especially these days. Almost no mm -hmm. tech companies are going public in the last 18 right. months, right? And so it's pretty rare. So it was a little different time. This was the late 90s and the dot-com boom and then the bust. Mm -hmm. So we lived through that, both as a public company. Regulation was a lot lighter. It's much heavier to be a public company now. And there was a boom time, so we could be public a little bit like the boom time of 2021. Everybody came out and, you know, then got the overhang and so forth. I think most founders should be looking at a funding event, raising money, or even private equity, selling a majority or minority or something like that along the way, or public company, selling a piece of your company, as funding events that have a little marketing appeal because mm -hmm. people clap when you do that and they see you and the rest. But other than that, it's not an end in itself. There's a lot of ego attached to raising money and being public and ringing the bell. But if you do it for the ego, you, it's not going to end well. It's a funding event and you got to get back to business and then you have more weight to run challenge to run the business. More VCs that analyze your moves or public being a public company, it's harder to grow as a public company. And there are some good reasons to go public, but 1% of 1% 
of funded yeah. companies go public. So like, why are people saying that? Like, you, just because you love football doesn't mean you're going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback and you right. should bet your life on it. So it's one of the possibilities and it's certainly doing, you know, certainly possible. Yeah. Shoot, shoot, if I could be part of it, it's certainly possible. So, you know, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't make it the first one. And for practical founders who are, we could just talk about the math. I just talked to a bootstrap founder 25 minutes ago, yep. got it to $17 million before raising any outside funding. Revenue, 17 million revenue, revenue. Seven, of yep. recurring yep. annual oh, okay. recurring revenues, ARR. Yep. yep. Not your, you know, not like other business, it's offer business. These are recurring revenue businesses. Yep. The thing is growing 75% a year profitably. There is a lot of super leverage in this business. I know his space. I know his competitors personally. Mm -hmm. And um, that company is worth $200 million. And he's got a few founders and they could split it between them. In order for a founder to go public, series A, B, C, V, D, venture funding, and then go public and sell more of it again, to end up with $200 million between them. Mm -hmm. You actually have to sell it for like, go public for like three or four billion and be one of the few hundred that have ever done that. Like, yep. or, you know, so the odds are just against you. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I'm not saying VC funding is bad or going public is bad, but it's just way more rare and way more risky than people see. Thank you for all of that, because I think it plays really well into how we educate founders around this idea that this myth of going public should be the goal. There are very few companies that do it. There are fewer companies that do it really successfully. And when we take a look and give advice to founders, it's more about the founder's personal ROI. So you just went yeah. through that return on mm -hmm. their investment. So it is their time, the the, the capital that they've infused mm -hmm. into the business to get it started. And founders, just like the math you explained, could very well be far better off selling into the private markets to private investors a portion of the business or control to private equity yeah. because that, that playbook on its own can be very lucrative post-sale. Mm -hmm. So I really like you saying, you know, not only is it kind of the anomaly, but it shouldn't be the goal because it's not the end game, right? It, think about it as a funding event. I think those yeah. are those are great pieces of advice. But for most of the businesses, right, that is just not going to be realistic, nor is it the best ROI. Could we talk about your experience with venture capital that has kind mm -hmm. of shaped your opinion on how founders should grow and maximize their ROI? Yeah. ACT was started in the early 90s with a little friends and family, some doctor that had money far away that somebody knew, and a bunch of really scrappy young people just selling like crazy to get into market. This was before money came into the software business, right? So we got a, you know, the company to a million and then a two million in revenue. And then I think a little institutional money came in before Symantec bought it. But it was, we would literally go to a trade show and put a number on our board and say, we got to sell 350 copies of the software. And I would have the microphone at the beginning, you know, at the you know, the front of the crowd and somebody had the credit card thing in the back and we were hitting our goal. So, you know, that was the early days of scrappy selling. Money has come into the business. Sales logics, we raised money. We raised $7 million to start it, another $8 million to grow it and, and went public after that. It's $27 million of funding. And we were able to grow fast and go public in five years. So that worked. You know, there, we made all the funds. Mm -hmm. We're a fund maker for everybody yeah. who invested yeah. in us. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that they were able to sell at these crazy year 2000 
dot-com boom valuations, yeah, like hundreds of millions. And then a year later, when everything kind of fell over, is when the employees got to sell it. So hmm. VCs, the house kind of always wins. And I always had good relations with the VCs. I was an executive, you know, I wasn't the founder, but I was an executive leader, part of all those discussions. And with uh, Infusionsoft, I was part, you know, I've been on Sand Hill Road like months of my life, raising big money from VCs there. But Infusionsoft didn't sell. We raised $100 million there, grew fast. But that promise of we raise this money, grow fast and keep growing. Uh, we were a Mm, a step or two behind HubSpot. HubSpot's now worth $25 billion and Fusionsoft's not. And all the stock options and excitement and clapping that happened didn't materialize for founders. So, by the way, you raise big funding from VCs not winning for founders. Like literally mm-hmm. walk away with nothing is yeah. 50% of the time. So, it's rare when you keep upping the bets and it worked. By the way, no VC would argue with me on that. They know they're playing the, quote, power law game. Yeah, of course. And they're not arguing, but most founders don't know that a lot of times big VC funding will increase your risk of winning your prize and getting to the impact you want at the universe and all the right. It isn't always just about the money and the prize. It's about creating an impact and doing, achieving your vision and all of that kind of thing. So, What's happened in the last, I don't know, 10 years, so we're t- 2023, so funds started getting bigger and bigger, VC funds. They used mm-hmm. to have a fund of $200 million and then they would put 5 or $10 million to work and a, a half dozen companies, something like that. All of a sudden, now there's billion-dollar funds and they got to put big checks. We have to write checks of 20 and $30 million mm-hmm. and it's Series ABC. So all of a sudden, to pay everybody back – at their expectations and have money left over for founders, the investors, with these bigger checks coming in, all of a sudden it has to hit like two or three billion dollars for everybody to get paid back, right? So the bar kept going up. The funds got bigger and the bar kept going up and the risk got going. Meanwhile, at the same time, it's easier and faster to create software. Right. And go to market if you know what you're doing. There's a lot yeah. of leverage in the software business. This Almost $20 million software bootstrap company I just mentioned is five years old. It's incredible. Yep. Yeah. So it's, you know, totally possible. There's many ways to do it. And it's not saying VC funding is bad and bootstrap is the right way. I'm not religious about either. I'm practical. Call them practical founders who can do it. But there's just a lot of naivete about the VC funding game. I call them drug pushers. And it's a little bit of an opioid crisis, meaning... You take the drug, you can't get off it. It generally doesn't end well when you take big funding drugs. And there's a lot of drug pushers out there saying this is what you should do and take the pill. And funding isn't bad. It's just overprescribed and misunderstood. So I'm not against VC funding. I talk to half a dozen VC funders uh, a week, and a lot of them appreciate what I write about on LinkedIn and the Practical Founders podcast and the rest where I'm talking about it, just being more reasonable for founders. I'm not selling anything to founders. So I think there's a funding industrial complex that has said, hey, you got to take my big funding drugs and go public or you aren't cool. And it's really about yeah. what they're selling. Yeah, I think what I really appreciate about the education that you're giving is it's not so much judgmental about whether you should take venture or not, but you're educating founders around what are the questions you should be asked? What game are you playing? Know the game that you're going into, right? So yeah, I very much appreciate that. I'm also seeing a lot of founders, these kind of newer generations, look at 
their entrepreneurial career really as a career path, right? And so they're going mm-hmm. to be building multiple companies and they're really enjoying the journey. And so mm-hmm. I love it when somebody gets to the point in five years, 17 million of ARR with profitability and a growth rate of 75% year over year. I mean, that, that's the magic. That's mm-hmm. the trifecta for hitting an enormous valuation. And so when you advise a client like that, do we say, hey, is it time to take chips off the table? Because this has got to be the majority of your net worth. And these are the ways that you could possibly do it. Or do we say, nope, we're going to keep this same growth rate. We're going to hit 25 million of ARR because there is an enormous step up at 25 of an EBITDA multiple, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So do you think through that game with your founders? Well, that's actually the game to talk to through. So you've got yep. people selling growth equity funding or private equity, take money off the table and yep. to get a second bike of the apple. You got VCs saying, keep raising big funding and go, go, go and go public someday. Mm-hmm. That's their goal. That's why we hear about this because it's their goal. There's maybe one of the other founders or somebody says, man, we could just run this ourselves and have a great mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. run it for 20 years. And this is the most fun we've ever had. Why would we want to screw it up? Right. By the way, that's another possibility is run it for a long time and run it profitably. I didn't see that in the old days, but these are the happiest founders I know with the happiest employees and happiest customers is they're just doing it for the right reasons and they found the leverage and, you know, it's it's good. So that's a question. That, and one of the reasons I advocate procrastinating big funding is once you have said I'm taking VC funding or I'm public or I'm doing it, you've kind of gone through a door and you can't go back. Right. If you, yes, yes. If you're bootstrapped and lightly funded with friends and family and they're like, just go do what you want to do, practical funding, you have optionality. You could do what you want. And a lot of founders change their mind. Sure. Some people get to the exit door and say, wait a minute, this is my identity and I don't want to go create another business. And so they pull back. Or, by the way, on my podcast, the Practical Founders Podcast, I've talked to 30 founders who sold their business and they're so addicted to the game of creating companies, changing the world and you yeah. know, building yeah. like I am, that they sell their companies and it's the happiest day of their life when the check hits the bank. And then two days later when they don't have a team or an identity or a place to go or a mission, and it's the worst day of their life. And they then they yeah. do it again. So there's all kinds of ways to do it. And mm-hmm. thinking through without – like usually the advisors are selling something. And so they're waving their hands saying, pick me, pick me, pick my way to do it. And there's all kinds of ways to do it. So the my podcast is about saying, here's another way to do it. And it worked for them. And he tried something that didn't work. And there's a lesson. And so here's that. And there's all kinds of ways to do it. So and thinking through that. So I've gone from helping founders more operationally and strategically. And they're growing their business because I've been in the nitty gritty for years and years from at every level, top to bottom to uh, getting founders together to talk about what they think their game is that works for them. What's their why? What's their market? What's the mm-hmm. timing? You know, some founders have a number that say, if I get this number, I'll sell it. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then they change their mind or, you know, otherwise. And uh, it's all different. Sometimes that changes. A health issue comes up, I got to sell it. Or, you know, market change. I'm getting eaten by a competitor. It's time. So... You know, I like the comment you said, advisors, they're all selling something. You're in the unique position of 
you don't have to work, right? You could go build another company and fund it yourself, but you've chosen to help founders, right? So you're coming Mm -hmm. from this place of, of real authenticity. And we think of ourselves very, very similarly. We don't have to do this, but we have learned so much about M&A and we know that that is the black box for, for many, many founders. So if we can get them a little bit smarter about these decisions, we know we're giving back, right? And yes, it does benefit us as a company when we help a founder actually execute on an M&A transaction. Yeah, yeah. But what's far more interesting is the conversation that you're in to say to those founders, hey, this is what we know about M&A today, right? It changes every year. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit different. But today, the value of what you have in the market, and I would say to your founders, you you have the trifecta. Most of these companies that are have a growth rate like that and are pouring ARR out have not focused on profitability. And today, in today's M and A market, profitability is really really valuable, and the mm-hmm. multiples are higher for profitable companies. And if you think that you're in the fourth or fifth inning of your game, this may be the time to maximize your ROI. Or we say. You know what? You're at 17, 20 million of AR is the magic number, and your multiple jumps from 10 to 15. So that is an enormous difference in enterprise value. And I'm kind of making up those numbers because it's different for every industry, right? Mm -hmm. It's not software is not just software, right? We've got Mm -hmm. kind of fintech and property tech and recycling tech. Marketplaces and yes, right. It's not all B2B SaaS, right? Absolutely. So we love having that discussion because it's first about, hey, let's get wise, right? Let's get wise about mm-hmm. M&A and what are your goals? And if you love, love, love running this business and your team loves it and people uh, you know, outside, your investors are saying, we want an exit, well, you got to do what's right for you. Most investors are not saying, hey, we want an exit now. Like that, in my experience, tends to be the minority. The majority mm-hmm. is when you're thinking about exiting and you have you know, a sophisticated investor, they want to dump more money into their big winners, right? So they want to see if they can create the grand slam for the fund. Yes. And like you've mentioned right now, the hurdle is higher. You got to have the billion dollar valuation to get paid the same <laughs> for the founders, right? It's, it is a, it is a very tricky, tricky slope. Um, and, and you've been through it. So I love the fact that you're kind of giving this advice Today, but you know, on your podcast, which is fantastic. Yeah. And what's what's interesting to me is these founders, they're, you know, may they may be first time SaaS founders, software founders, and they're very smart people. They're very mm-hmm. earnest. They see problems in the world. They're builders. They're doing abnormal things. They're doing two jobs. They're grinding this job to get this thing going. They're really hard workers. They're very savvy, super smart, all this kind of stuff. And they say, I think I need funding. And I ask them why. And they don't know what the VC funding game is and they haven't really declared what sport they want to play to pick up the right tools for that sport. And, and so I back it up and say, well, let's talk about this. So VCs are very educated about this, like Mm -hmm. super sophisticated and they got the leverage in the game and everything. So like, new kind of uh, naive founders with big, you know, ego, you know, worries or whatever, emotional kind of a vulnerable, you might say, are, you know, getting uh, kind of sold these things and they're just naive about it. But once you get savvy about it, you can choose, choose your sport wisely. And I think the same thing is going to be said about M&A. Like it's your life's work and Mm -hmm. your investment in your money and your worth. And 
all the buyers that you work with do this over and over, right? And they've seen every Absolutely. playbook and they've seen how they're watching the tapes and they got all the best advisors in the world and here you come and you don't know anything. Founders tell me over and over again on my podcast, I tried to sell it once. I tried to do it myself. It was a real mess. Maybe they did it and they say, I want to do that again. And the second time they get better help and for all the right reasons, it's just something you don't do very often and it's very complicated and it's easy to get wrong. And you know, the DIY method can work in a boom time when somebody just makes a crazy offer that you can't refuse. But if it, you got to be more deliberate about it, getting great help for this thing you're going to go through once and then, you know, stop working on. You're not becoming an M&A pro. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that is, you know, literally our talk track is you are great at building a business to this point. If somebody's multiple people are seeing um, value in it to potentially acquire it, what you've never done and you shouldn't be an expert in is selling that business. And the true, true professionals not only de-risk spending the next six months to find the right buyer, the right fit and maximize the outcome. But I think one thing that gets overlooked is having that expert team, somebody that's really in your industry, knows your buyers, gives a ton of confidence to the buyers that a real mm -hmm. transaction is going to get done, that there's real conviction to do a deal. Things are going to be reasonable. They're going to be certainly negotiated. And we or those uh, investment bankers are going to be fighting for every dollar for for you, but it isn't a joke. It isn't something that is going to fall apart because of a lack of experience. And I also say that to founders, we can get you the best possible teams in the world, but you got to know who your buyer is. Buyers who are unsophisticated can cause just as many problems. So there are a lot of... Um, this is news to some founders, by the way, like th that not all is. money is smart money, even no. if they got a fund and everything. They may be playing a simple playbook and being naive themselves, right? So there yeah. are savvy VCs yes. uh, who are wise about the game. And there was a lot of newcomers who were just prescribing drugs without... Uh, Without and, much uh, and you, analysis. And you, don't know. and you don't know who you're getting in bed with, right? Somebody's got to know. And so if you have the right <laughs> representation who already has a relationship, knows how those buyers behave, know not just post-transaction, but during a transaction, are they going to retrade? How do they think about working capital? What do they bring to the management team? Uh, there's so many components of it that at the core, the founder of the business should not have to be an M&A expert. Leaning on experts is going to benefit you just over and over and over in so many different aspects. So I appreciate you saying that, right? It's our mantra. I don't want this to be an exit-wise commercial here, mm -hmm. but it's just, just, uh, just so important. Well, in that game, the whole thing is about specialists. So yeah. I've got actually quite a huge following on LinkedIn about what I'm talking about. And I talk to founders all the time because just like this founder call I had earlier, I'm a specialist here. I don't know about restaurants and I don't know about marketplace software. I do know B2B SaaS. Literally, we had a conversation. I asked him four things about his metrics and I could tell that he was profitable. And I knew what his growth rate was. And, you know, we talking about funding. I could tell the math and we were, I was right there with him. I knew his biggest competitor. I helped her start the company. Yeah. Right. So it was like, it's not often you run into people that know where you are and are helping in a good way. 
Uh, it's, Absolutely. It, it's a lot of general advice that's not very useful for s- software founders. Startups are now cool. They were not sexy in the early 90s. People asked mm-hmm. me, when are you going to get a real job? And I was doing all these software things. Not till my company went public did people say, oh, I guess there's a software <laughs> thing here, right? But yep. software startups are cool. It's over. There's a lot of hype around it. People think I just need to do it. I need to be public. I want to be one of the cool kids. But so there's a lot of naive, gentle information out there, but getting specialist help, especially for the important stuff, for somebody who really knows your industry and knows what you do and your phase of growth and all of that. It's very important. You know, you touched on one other thing, which was the happiest day is the day that you sell. And then the next day or the day after is the saddest day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been through it four times personally. And Mm -hmm. what I found after the first one, there was dissatisfaction because I literally had no idea what I'm going to do now. And what's what's fun today is, right, you'll, you'll see my background. I'm in a client's office. And we are selling this business and we have a management meeting going on, which is buyers have flown from out of town from Los Angeles and driven in from Chicago to go through this business and and really go through the details. So they're expressing real interest and that's why management meetings exist. And so I'm here helping, kind of facilitating but on our ride home uh, over, I picked up our, our client at the airport because his business mm-hmm. is not in his home state. And what we talked about is, yes, how this, this transaction is going to happen, but what is he going to do next? And I could, uh, what was exciting is the wheels were really turning. This is a business that doesn't require his expertise beyond maybe a three-month kind of pass-off period, mm-hmm. some inter- share some intellectual property. And so it was really exciting to hear about all the ideas that he had. And for me, my next three exits, I always knew what the next thing was going to be. Mm. And, and that just had me really motivated to get to the finish line, take a breather, but I have a plan, right? I know yeah. it, it, the, the check is there and that's nice, but what am I going to do with my life? And does it more align with my values that I've refined over time? And this is what I'm seeing this founder do. It's just super exciting to watch. So I appreciate you bringing up that can often be you know, real dissatisfaction after a transaction. And I would just urge founders to really understand what their life could be like, should be like, and will be afterwards and, and plan it. Well, it's very common in the software business where we can create companies with recurring revenue, and it doesn't take a lot of funding. You could code something yourself and get your first customers and zigzag up to $5 million and right, get it uh, without funding. But we have recurring revenues and high growth rates and low, you know, high margins right, uh, in the mm-hmm. software business and multiples of revenue on exits. Yes. Right? And strategic exits like five times, 10 times or more, mm-hmm. even in the post boom times right now, it creates, and I've been there, which is you're all in on this thing. You're changing the world and moving industries and growing companies fast. And there's really big prizes. It's, you know, so a lot of people go and it's a lot of fun. It's an amazing game. A lot of founders go all in on it. And, and I was certainly one of those that did. And it was very difficult to not do that, not be a workaholic, not to be the king of the hill, not to be changing the world, not to have, you know, a team climbing Everest with you uh, every quarter, it seems like. So there's some therapy. uh, The the modern SaaS business is more steady than the old software business. And 
it's still more exciting. But there's degrees of intensity that founders put into it and the amount of therapy it takes to get them over the hump. Some founders are pretty good, meaning I'm taking money out of my software business now. I'm having a great life. And if I sold it, I just continue that. So yeah. there's, there's a continuum of possibilities there, but there's generally some therapy that's part of the whole process uh, that I'm sure you provide. You know, uh, I want to step back just a second because our listeners have told us they really appreciate when we define things and we've said ARR a couple of okay. times, mm -hmm. right? So the annual recurring revenue in software mm -hmm. businesses, the value of companies is a multiple of ARR, that recurring right. annual revenue, mm -hmm. as opposed to a lot of other businesses that are valued on EBITDA, which is more like profitability, yes. right? So you might right. have a big, big, big top line revenue number, but your profitability is low and the multiple is against that profitability number. So software is very, very special in that way. And what yeah. we what we see is once you reach 2 million of ARR, a lot of hands start to raise on the buyer yes. front. Uh -huh. Oh, that's interesting. That is growing. I talk to I those founders. They're getting yep. those calls, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and yeah, so, and so you may be getting those calls and maybe you're not profitable yet, but they're seeing kind of the trajectory. And I say this on a lot of podcasts, but or a lot of, a lot of our episodes that buyers are buying your future cash flows. So when the, you're, the more you're creating certainty on that continued growth and that growing ARR, the stickiness of that ARR, it's incredibly mm -hmm. valuable. So when you start to get those calls, you really want to understand you know, who who is calling. It's really like a needle in the haystack that you're actually going to mm -hmm. sell to that person that called you. But it might be the wake up call to say, "Huh, I wonder what my business really is worth." And talking to somebody like you, who's mentoring founders mm -hmm. in that position, I'm sure you have a kind of a good sense. Uh, we can certainly be helpful by finding you the perfect kind of investment banker in that industry to give you valuation. What we see is if you can get valuation range from three industry-specific investment bankers, then you have a really good sense of where you would trade today. But more mm -hmm. importantly, where could you be? How, how much more should you grow to really, really maximize? Those are the really kind of fun conversations. And then you can affect that valuation operationally, right? We're going to spend yeah. effort going in this direction because this is what drives their personal ROI. And it sounds like that's, that's what I love. That's what I take out of what you're doing today is educating founders around making those right decisions around funding the business and growing the business and really enjoying the ride, but at the same time, making sure that they understand their personal ROI at any given point. Yeah, it's pretty magical. It's one of the things, I mean, after all these years, it's like... I don't want to say how many years I've been doing this. It's been a long time since I've been in the software business. The software business is pretty magical and, you know, you can actually have a life and profits and growth and yeah. multiples of revenue at the same time. And like these days, it's pretty amazing. People have worked harder in other industries for less, for mm -hmm. sure. Right. So it's pretty crazy. And AI is coming in. One of the things I say about the software industry that's different I mean, it's all digital, so we're making this up, and there's almost no marginal cost to the next unit of a web-based software, right? It's mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know the pennies it takes to deliver to you, or something like that. So it's it's really different. But uh, in a software business, you can you can make something twenty times better than the alternative, fifty times better. In the hamburger business, it's hard to make a burger five times better 
than somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Or a water bottle, 10 times better, right? Well, maybe with you put Michael Jordan's name on it or something like that. But like in software business, smart people can do that. And it's just an amazing business. I'm just very fortunate to be still, this software business is still going. It hasn't phased out like a lot of businesses and, you know, AI is going to change some things and the rest. So it just opens up a lot more possibilities for founders. And that's the discussion we're having. You could sell, you could take money off the table, you could grow it, you could grow it for profits. Uh, You could, you know, there's all kinds of ways to play this game and not just the big VC funding go public game. Greg, let me clarify, because I, I believe I understand it. When you said, you know, you can grow software businesses and still have a life. Are you yeah. referring to the idea that once you've figured out product market fit, you've figured yeah. out you, unit economics mm-hmm. and you start selling, those sales continue. It isn't kind of eat what you yeah. kill. I have to sell X, I get Y. I have to sell X again, I get Y. Yeah. It's, it's the bootstrapping game is really hard. Like to go okay. sell, to go be, create a product and sell it and get into revenue and use your own money and run two companies at the same time so you could fund the new product and mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing. But at some point, the business kind of grows up and there's a little profit there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a, a recurring revenue business it's a beautiful thing. The software yep. as a service SaaS thing, there's beautiful metrics to manage it and get better and better where you don't have to work 18 hours a day forever. Mm-hmm. And some founders work three days a week. And, you know, some founders work less than that. You know, if they want to dial it back and go kite surfing for three months. Yeah. Right. Or start, or, or start their yeah. next business. No, it's another way. Like, oh my yeah. God. So I didn't know you could do that. I'm from the Midwest. We don't think about it things that way, but like in the old days. But growing a public company in five years, there was no time for anything other than my wife and my young kids and and the company. And yeah. in the old in the nineties, you traveled every single week, including internationally. So it's a little easier to talk to people all over the world these days. But like uh you know, it's, it was uh, pretty all-consuming. So it's kind of a new possibility that people could have, once you get you once you do the investment, right, to get the flywheel going, build a team and find a niche and keep uh, expanding the, the leverage that founders and their teams can have a manageable life. And, the, you know, a lot of bootstrap companies with 3 million of recurring revenues, ARR, and 12 employees, and everybody's really happy. Yeah. Well, Greg, this has been awesome. Is there anything else that you would like to kind of impart as as your words of wisdom and advice to our fellow founders? We've learned a ton here, but anything else that you want to kind of leave us with? Well, I just reinforce the point, and it's kind of the practical founder way that I talk about, that there's all kinds of ways in the software business and many other businesses to play the game. And the big money you think about the prize of the exit or the big money that funders show up and say, I want a piece of you and I could multiply there uh, is just one of, you know, in some sense masks what the real game is for you and your life and your customers and the impact you want to create in the world. So I'd say it's all very exciting, but, you know, founders should be thinking about expanding the possibilities in the modern era of creating what they want to create in the world in their own way. There's more ways to do it now than there ever were. And it's just amazing. Well, thank you. 
Look, this has been really good. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know your time is precious as, as everyone's is. I would just really encourage people to take listen to the Practical Founders podcast. I think that conversation that you're having with founders, SaaS founders in particular, is just mm-hmm. it's very authentic. It's coming from a place of like, hey, I've been there. Um, and the advice is really solid. So I appreciate you being here and sharing uh, your words of wisdom. Thanks for all the work you do to help founders do the right thing. Thanks, Greg. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.